0: This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This season of the Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX. That's Francis, the letter F and the letter X at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for the end of January 2018. My name is David Dalton, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is an assistant professor of systematic theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. And to see you too, David. Happy, uh, what is today? When? Thursday. Happy Thursday. Yeah. Uh, Our friends happy. will
1: hear this on Wednesday.
0: Yes. Happy it's Thursday. It's Thursday. And happy Wednesday. Yes. On today's episode, we're looking at three topics. Pope Francis spoke out recently about the dangers of fake news. We'll look at what the Pope meant and how his comments are being heard here in America and around the world. Next, 2018 is starting off like a typical American year in that we've already had nearly a dozen mass shootings in the first month. We'll talk about that. And in our last segment of the show, we'll talk about the recent March for Life in Washington, D.C., which happened a couple of weeks ago. We also have special bonus segments. All of you friends of Frank who support the show by donating every month on Patreon can download little bits of bonus audio, an extended discussion or an interview, or a little bit of video we're starting to work on. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. It doesn't cost much, and you get so much in return so, so much. Before we get started, let's also remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing franciseffectpod at gmail.com. We also want to thank our season sponsor, Liturgical Press, and welcome our new season sponsor, Franciscan Media. They helped to make this show possible, so please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. Dan, how have you been the past couple of weeks?
1: David, pretty, pretty well. Our listeners are probably used to and sick and tired of me saying how busy I am and how I'm on the road, but I don't have, well, I'm still busy as we all are, but uh, I have been home. I've been in Chicago for the last couple of weeks, which is a, a new, a relatively new thing for me. It's been a while uh, given such a hectic travel schedule. It's nice it's very nice. Yeah, that's all I have to say about that. I, I, I love this neighborhood and this city and, and my friar community. And uh, to be here, <laughs> to be to, to play a monk, you know, I'm not a real monk, but I play one on TV with this idea of stability or staying in one place. It's, it's at first confusing for a mendicant who lives an itinerant life on the road, preaching and speaking and teaching. and But I could get used to this. Well good.
0: How are I, how are you? Yeah, I I have been actually traveling more. I have I was in Washington DC and we'll talk more about that in one of the segments today, but I've been starting to work more on some freelance production for some shows that are coming out, including a show for uh, some friends of mine at a a new nonprofit called freedomroad.us or freedomroad.us. And so please check out their website and their work because they're doing good stuff. And I'm, I'll be producing a podcast for them every month. And the first one is going to come out on February 1st. So I'm very excited about that. And then I'm, I'm still writing and writing is going very well. I've, I've actually taken a section of wall in one of the rooms in my house, the, the room that we use as an office. I've put blue tape up on the wall and I've begun blocking out the sections of the novel. I've got a whole bunch written, and now I'm trying to organize it into an actual flow wow. that the reader will will be able to kind of follow. I'm using a, a model from a book on script writing called Save the Cat, where you you literally st- structure out the, the different emotional beats into kind of four main sections. And that's what I'm trying to work on right now. So we'll see if that's helpful. I don't know that it can hurt because right now the novel has no structure, so I'm I'm working on that. That's really exciting. As yeah. we, We've talked about, uh, I think, last season a little bit more.
1: I always think it's so cool because it's a type of writing that, on the one hand, the, the practice of writing, I, I understand the discipline of it. But fiction in, in the creative form is, is uh, yeah, very intriguing to me. Now, are you able to say anything yet about the, uh, the
0: theme or the, the genre of this, the book? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a science fiction conspiracy novel set in the near future near future meaning sort of an alternative 2018 and it it uses a lot of the same kinds of things that you'd find in a Dan Brown novel in the sense that there's there's sort of a clash between kind of a religious Something and a science something. Ooh. Only in this particular case they're kind of reversed. The religion something is the good guys, and the science something, depending on how you read the novel, could be the bad guys. They're they're the agents of chaos as opposed to the agents of order. And so at the center of it, there's a there's a dark, mysterious figure that wants to use the large Hadron Collider for nefarious purposes. Island, Watch out, France, Switzerland, France, yes. and uh, was it Germany? Who else? It goes through a couple of countries. Doesn't yeah, it? And, the, and there's there's a there's a major figure who's not the main character, but who helps the main character, sort of an Obi Wan Kenobi character. But she's she's based loosely on the religion author Phyllis Tickle. Oh, yeah, so, that's interesting. Yeah, so utilizing some of the things that I I knew from my friendship with Phyllis have come into this character, and that's been that's been a joy to write, just to sort of be to be revisiting some of the things that I knew and loved about her as a way of informing this character and fiction is weird because the more that you write like real life the less that it flows and so the closer that i got to it being like phyllis the less i was able to write it the more that it got to being like this other person alice tuttle is the name of the character that's cool yeah the more the more that it became its own thing yeah to be continued to be continued that sounds great yeah well let's go in then to our first topic So in late January, the Pope released a statement that condemned the notion of fake news, saying, quote, that it was a sign of intolerant and hypersensitive attitudes and that it leads only to the spread of arrogance and hatred, unquote. It's interesting to have the Pope weighed into what has largely been an American battle We see Donald Trump and others on the right talking about this notion of fake news and condemning it. And in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, Donald Trump released his fake news awards, which was kind of a mock, a mock and a mocking of what we would consider mainstream media. So I found it odd that the Pope would get into this controversy and would begin to give some bright lines in the midst of it. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the Pope was saying and what he was meaning by fake news, but I'm wondering, have you heard about this? What's your take on this, Dan?
1: Yeah, I've actually read the whole the whole document. So just additional background, uh, every year since the pontificate of pope, pope Paul VI, the church has celebrated World Communications Day, which usually takes place in May, and this year it will take place on May 13th, 2018. Just a little additional background about this celebration. It's actually the only worldwide celebration that was mandated by the Second Vatican Council. Vatican II, in its document on communications, on on media, um, one of the lesser-known decrees that was promulgated in 1963, actually called for the celebration of World Communications Day. And over the years, uh, various popes have taken the opportunity, going back to Paul VI, to talk about kind of contemporary issues. I'm very fond of what I think is a, a significant address that Pope Benedict XVI gave back in the early aughts when he uh, he didn't really coin the term. I don't think it's original to him, but he really talked about the need for evangelization in what he called the digital continent, so that there was this kind of mission that Christians had, like, you know, hopefully without the same sort of colonial legacy and consequences and, and you know, and kind of evils of the colonization of the African continent or North and South America. But but you can imagine a, a peaceful analog where, where are the people that need to be brought the faith or the gospel? And, and Pope Benedict talked about this digital continent. And this is re- where, though it's not a physical space necessarily, it's where people are and where they spend their time. So there is this longstanding tradition not to talk about something necessarily arcane and esoteric or something just abstract, but rather to deal with, as Gaudium et Spez says so well, to deal with the signs of our times and to interpret them in the light of the gospel. So a major marker, as you noted just a second ago, talking about particularly the U.S. context, a major sign of our time is fake news, quote unquote. It's interesting. Yeah, you have people like uh, President Trump and his surrogates talking about fake news as a, a pejorative uh, levied against kind of standard media outlets, you know, the, the cable news networks like CNN or the New York Times, you know, these in, these institutions of record that have, you know, uh, have earned the credibility and the trust of the public and of the industry. From the Trump perspective, it's been thrown around as an insult with, with no sense of irony, because, you know, it's, it's the Trump administration that is participating in the perpetuation of untruths.
0: Well, let me also say it's not just the Trump administration, but those on the alt-right that have taken the Trump administration as a beacon, particularly about six or eight months ago. You saw Richard Spencer and other luminaries of the alt-right begin using the phrase Lügenpresse, which is a, a phrase from Nazi Germany, the lying press. And I mean, it, I don't want to draw a direct parallel between what Trump is doing and neo-Nazism, but there are parallels that are happening between Trump's call out of fake news and the way that the alt-right has begun using some of these symbols and this language from Nazi Germany as a way of, of attacking The mainstream news outlets and undermining their ability or undermining their legitimacy in the public eye.
1: Yeah, and and, I mean, if I may, I think even the phrase alt right is fake news. I mean, it's it's a self appropriated term that white nationalists and neo Nazis have used to try to soften their their real ideology and,
0: and political. And and
1: social message. So
0: can we make a, a rule on the show that from now on I don't use the term alt right. We call them neo Nazis.
1: Let's do it. They're yeah. neo Nazis. Yeah. Okay. yeah, white
0: nationalists or white supremacists. Yeah. I
1: mean, I mean, let's let's call a spade a spade. You know, <laughs> or actually let's just call a spade a shovel because that's actually <laughs> what a spade is. So let's let's call an alt right uh, a Nazi. Yeah. Um, so back to the fake news. The Holy Father actually, you know, it's four sections in this relatively short document. His first section is subtitled "What is fake quote about fake news." and he addresses exactly the question you raised where he's what what do we mean by fake news and he says the term quote fake news has been the object of great discussion and debate in general it refers to the spreading of disinformation online or in the traditional media it has to do with false information based on non-existent or distorted data meant to deceive and manipulate the reader so I, I think that's actually a really great kind of go-to summary for fake news because the way that, we, you know, we were talking a second ago about these white nationalists and about the Trump administration and others crying fake news. And oftentimes what that means, particularly in the case of President Trump, is if he sees a story in the newspaper or hears a report on television about him that he doesn't like, he calls it fake news, regardless of the veracity of, of the, the claims and the facts and the reporting. What the Holy Father is pointing out is what Donald Trump generally calls fake news is not at all fake news. Fake news is, by definition, news that's untrue or distorted. And here we see things like the headlines and the kind of general conspiracy theory type things that are are promoted by blogs like Breitbart, or, uh, you know, the kind of uh, trolling enterprise that the, the Russians were engaged in during the 2015-2016 election cycle. Things that are, you know, patently untrue. And it's interesting. Pope Francis says here, too, um, he says what also makes it fake news in the same section, he says, is that though these are false, these claims are believable. He calls them captious inasmuch as it grasps people's attention by appealing to stereotypes and common social prejudices and exploiting instantaneous emotions like anxiety, contempt, anger, and frustration. So, you know, I I think he names well what fake news is. It's untrue or it's distorted, but people want to believe it because it plays into stereotypes and hatred and
0: prejudice. Well, and so what that shows us is that what he's looking at is the kind of ideological driver that we have right now. So. I, I wanna take two steps back. You you read Jacques Derrida, I read Jacques Derrida. Jacques Derrida uh, was a was a post structuralist post modern philosopher from the late twentieth century.
1: About half our audience just fell asleep. I know,
0: <laughs> just just stick with me. But you may have heard the buzzword post modernism, and you may have been told post modernism is just relativism. Post modernism is simply trying to twist words and make them mean whatever you want to mean. Post modernism is often used as a pejorative. Those that actually have read Derrida closely realize that Derrida was not trying to twist words. He was trying instead to name an effect that he saw happening in language where language sometimes didn't point to the things that we thought that it pointed to. And when Derrida would get in fights with, and they were literally intellectual fights at times, with some of, of the other philosophers of his day, they would accuse him of obfuscation. They would accuse him of all these sorts of things. But then they would go and they would basically do wish fulfillment. They would talk about what they wished were true about language or what they wished were true about the world instead of what was actually being observed what we're finding here is the same thing and I'm sorry for the analogy. It was a nerd analogy. (laughs) I got it. (laughs) But but, but the the basic idea is you can wish that the world conformed to trickle-down economics, and you could talk and talk and talk as if the world conformed to trickle-down economics. But 35 years of evidence has shown us that the world does not conform to trickle-down economics. Now, when you're confronted by that evidence, you have two choices. You can either collapse your argument and say, I'm sorry, I'm no longer going to put forward that argument— or you can just shout the argument louder. And what we see a lot of times from an ideological standpoint, from a new standpoint, is people simply reasserting the argument louder as if it were true and not actually looking at facts. So what, what I hear you saying in in what the pope is has said in the statement is that the, the measure is— is the statement factual demonstrably or is it contrafactual? And if it's contrafactual and you still assert it as if it were true or should be true, then you're in the realm of fake news. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, that's the first part.
1: So again, he also includes that second part that it also is, you know, it uses this distortion of the truth or untruths in order to appeal to fears and prejudices and anxieties of others because it taps into a certain level of people's conscious or subconscious that they want, like you said, they want to believe it to be true. So they want to believe, for instance, when Breitbart has a headline that says that Hillary Clinton is behind some kind of child sex trafficking operation in a D.C. pizza shop there are a number of people who want that to be true and as insane as and preposterous as it is they'll accept it anyways because it it supports the prejudices and the stereotypes and and the and, and also speaks to the anxiety and fears of that particular audience the, the other thing that pope francis talks about too is he says that, you know the, and i'm going to quote here the difficulty of unmasking and eliminating fake news is due also to the fact that many people interact in homogenous digital environments impervious to differing perspectives and opinions Echo chambers. Echo chambers, silos, yeah. And he, so, I mean, he's very perceptive. He and his advisors working on this document. I mean, I think they're diagnosing and, and naming things, you know, as they are. And and this is right. I mean, you can't if – you, if you surround yourself with like-minded uh, thinkers in any kind of variety of ideology, you are, as he says, impervious then to these differing opinions and perspectives. So you're never really challenged to think about, oh, maybe that doesn't make sense or maybe – Maybe there is no evidence for this, or maybe this is exaggerated or distorted. If I can say a little bit more about the document, because I think, you know, so, okay, so what? He's diagnosing what's going on with fake news. He's naming it, I think, very accurately and very skillfully. What does that mean for us Christians? Yes. The first thing he says is we all have a responsibility. He says in the beginning of section two, he says, none of us can feel exempted from the duty of countering these falsehoods which echoes, again, uh, a a kind of a a repeated call to Christian vocation that Pope Francis uses over and over again. I I think most uh, powerfully in Laudato Si, where he talks about stewardship and care for creation is everybody's responsibility. In Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel, Pope Francis says that none of us can say by virtue of our vocation or our work or our identity or our social location, that we can be apart from the poor or not work on behalf of justice for the marginalized. He says this is the duty of everybody. Likewise, he says all of us have to counter these kinds of falsehoods. And the reason we have to is because this is sinful. And that's the real takeaway. Pope Francis is saying here that, you know, to to share false information, to appeal to these base fears and anxieties and and concerns, to tap into stereotypes and prejudices and racism and misogyny and the rest, that is participation in sin. And spreading disinformation is sinful. And the, the example he uses, it's very clever and I think very insightful from a theological perspective, is he goes back to Genesis 3 and he says that we need to unmask, I love this, he says, quote, We need to unmask what could be called the, quote, snake tactics used by those who disguise themselves in order to strike at any time and place. What he is doing here is he's saying trolls, and in particular anonymous trolls, because he talks here about how people are hiding themselves. You can't discern uh, who it is and where it's coming from. It's very clever. He he says, uh, basically, it's the strategy, he says, that's employed by the, quote, crafty serpent in the book of Genesis, and he says, it's so, it's so clever because he says, the, this crafty servant who at the dawn of humanity created the first fake news. I just think that's, that's brilliant because he's saying, and then he goes on to do a little exegesis, a little scriptural interpretation and says, you know, there's a way through the lens of fake news to read the Genesis 3 account. Because if you go back and you look, what the snake does in that conversation with, Ad, with, with Adam and Eve, particularly with Eve at first, is he begins with a question that's partly true. There's a little bit of truth in it. And what Pope Francis points out is the snake asks, did God really tell you you can't have any of the fruit of any of the trees in the in the, in the uh, garden? And then Eve's like, no, he just had this tree. And so then he he kind of like he gets his in, the snake that is, and then starts twisting things around. And likely we could say this human sort of propensity to want to believe it played into a stereotype or a, a, a hunger or a desire on the part of, you know, these early humans as depicted in the narrative what what it, what it does is it it distorts the thinking and sin emerges from that disobedience, harm, violation, alienation, and in a sense, I just love that. I think today's snakes, these snake tactics are exercised by anonymous trolls and by these blogs and these social media campaigns to really stir up really dark and uh, and hateful
0: and and vile aspects of, of human existence. Well, let me let me sort of riff on that for a minute. So one of the things that that I think about in terms of what the snake does in the garden, and my wife has, has written on this actually and has presented on this, the snake is a great advertiser because the snake comes to Eve and, and offers Eve something that she already has. To eat this fruit, you'll be like God. But Eve was already like God. She was made in the Imago day. She was being offered something that she already possessed, but he created in her the fear that she wouldn't have it or the fear that she needed somehow to supplement it.
1: That she wasn't good enough is the ultimate temptation. You know, God doesn't like you. You can be more than what you are if
0: you just eat this fruit. But when we look at the effects of fake news, fake news can create a feeling of danger in the city when we have evidence that shows that cities are getting safer, that violent crime is going down. It can create a fear of terrorism when as we'll say in the second segment when it's more likely that you'll be shot by someone in your neighborhood that you know that's the same color that you are than a terrorist from, you know, from abroad or even how we understand the word
1: terrorist, yeah. you know, and not call, you know, white teenagers who go into schools as we'll talk in the next segment and shoot other students yes. terrorists, you yeah. know, we don't we don't talk that way, you know, politicians don't talk that way, media doesn't often talk that way. A terrorism is
0: equal to brown people from the Middle East. So let me, let me then play a devil's advocate question. So we have just talked about siloing, and we've talked about the need to listen to evidence and voices that are not from our affinity group. But as Catholics, we sometimes run up against alternative viewpoints. Let me just take one, the notion of women priests as good Catholics as believing Catholics there's a level at which we have been commanded by papal injunction and others to not even consider that as a possibility and so if we talk about sin and the near occasions of sin we're called to avoid the near occasions of sin and to and to avoid the the devil and his temptations that's when we reaffirm our baptismal vows so where is the line between de-siloing yourself and listening to alternative points of view and the bright lines where the church says, but don't go this far, don't consider this perspective. How do we balance that as Catholics? Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure about the example of
1: of women's ordination or admittance of women to holy orders. I, I'm not sure if I follow the, the parallel here by way of example, because I, I would say, you know, there's nothing sinful about that consideration. You know, I think what you were referring to earlier, which is true, is that in the 90s, John Paul II issued a a statement, issued a document where he said the conversation is effectively over, you know, it's, and, and however, that level of teaching, by the way, is not dogmatic. It's not taught with the charisma of infallibility. It's subject to, to it's, I shouldn't say subject to change, but it's, it's not re- recognized as taught without error. Well, even even Ratzinger at the time cautioned him not to. Well, not, ca- exactly yeah. because Cardinal Ratzinger at the time is was and, and Pope Benedict Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth now is the same guy, uh, a, a brilliant theologian, and he understands that it would you can't actually teach that with the charisma infallibility. Um, yeah, so he even though I think sort of ideologically and personally Pope Benedict. Then Cardinal Ratzinger would, would agree with that statement that it 's more or less a closed question uh, in the Roman tradition. He, yeah, he realized that this level of teaching goes beyond you know it would be a big, big problem theologically so just to say that I, I think it 's not a sin to ask that question it 's never a sin to doubt or to ask questions about matters of faith and we 've talked in previous programs here about you know the difference between public dissent where one you know decides to step outside of communion with with the church. and and personal discernment and doubt and struggle and questioning. Uh, And then there's this, as we've also talked about on this show, we've talked about the role of the theologian to engage in historical, critical analysis and research and constructive work to deal and grapple with these questions. And that is also not dissent, you know? So, you know, in the case of John Paul II's kind of putting the kibosh on kind of ecclesial or magisterial uh, public reflection on on who could be admitted to orders to engage that isn't really there's no evidence of sin there's nothing sinful about that so I, 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 on that point you know I I'm
0: not sure exactly what you mean so so I, I take I take your point and and my my putting those two things alongside may have I, I was moving fast and trying to to think about places where I had remembered a papal bright line being sort of laid down and John Paul II was the the example that came to mind yeah but let's take then instead something where we have the, the argument from Christianity that, that Jesus was dead and then was resurrected from the dead. So we take that as, as a dogma of our faith. We have plenty of people who would then want to challenge that on scientific grounds or on other kinds of evidentiary grounds. And to what extent should a Christian be entertaining those things? And to what oh, extent yeah. should, they be, should they be moving against those kind of things and say, well, at the end of the day, I'm not, I'm going to stay siloed. As a Christian, and I'm not going to oh, have. Oh, okay, this, um, I see what you're I'm, saying. I'm sorry. I said yeah, it no, okay, I
1: see what you're saying. Yeah, well, I would say in this case, that's not siloing. To kind of stand firm in your belief is not siloing. Siloing is not is insulating yourself from ever hearing any kind of opposition. Okay, and so siloing isn't the retreat. It is a retreat. It isn't. Uh, I I'm sticking by my. Commitments and beliefs and convictions. So for example, here I, I think of the writing and, and the, the, the work and the, the life of, of uh, the late Trappist monk Thomas Merton. Near the end of his life, he, you know, he's, he was doing a lot of conversation, a lot of dialogue with non-Christian religious traditions, particularly East Asian uh, religious traditions. And uh, a lot of people in the mid and late '60s, even with the councils kind of opening to this on a more general way. We're still skeptical and said, oh, you know, this is not, Christians should be more siloed like in the pre-Vatican II era where, you know, religious liberty was considered sinful, you know, and and the American experiment was a bad thing. We should be not exposed to Protestants or to non-Christians. And and what Merton said was to engage in interreligious dialogue um, or ecumenism, in order to do that authentically, you have to be so steeped in your own tradition, so committed to it and understand it. That you actually bring something to the conversation. He says, It's, it's in fact, you should be so committed to it and, 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 and firm in your faith that you risk actually not understanding the other, because otherwise, if you come with this kind of flimsy openness, then you're not bringing anything. It's not dialogue anymore. It's a one-way street from the other person. So I, I think that's a model here. You know, it's, it, He's not calling for siloing. He's calling for a rootedness, a grounding mm. that allows one to then hear the perspectives of others, the experiences of others, to recognize as uh, the Second Vatican Council teaches in um, Nostra Atate uh, and, and other decrees, that there, there's nothing that's true in other religions and cultures that Christianity, that Catholicism rejects so to be open to that truth and we'll not sometimes we won't find it but there probably is something true about the lived experience of another so i think that's the call is we we, we the christians are called to be rooted grounded in their
0: faith but be open to dialogue with uh, others in this world so if i'm hearing you correctly would am i hearing that there's a qualitative difference between that kind of rootedness and staying firm in your faith while being open to dialogue and someone from an example that we used earlier who just dogmatically holds on to the notion of trickle-down economics counterfactually. And what would that difference be? I think the difference
1: is a matter of eyes open or eyes closed. Okay, You know, think of the three monkeys, you know, hands over the eyes, ears, and mouth. That to me is the siloing the echo chamber, won't, won't entertain it at all. So there may be a siloing in somebody, you know, in economic terms who adheres to the theory of trickle-down economics – who won't entertain any other economic theory. And I think going back to the theological example of orders that you mentioned, there are people who will silo and say, you know, I don't want to hear about any of the scriptural arguments or the historical arguments or the theological arguments for this possibility. And so I would see that as the siloing and then you only get information from the theologians or the pastors or these sorts of people or bloggers or whatever that that support your point of view. Mm. And so that that's the siloing he's talking about where you're not open to being exposed even to the views or opinions of others. It doesn't mean that being and I think going back to your mention about postmodernity earlier and this fear of relativism, I think people think that if they listen to the experiences of others, even non-Christians, even non-believers of any sort or whatever, that they will somehow, you know, that, that it's that they affirm it or that they endorse it or that it's, you know, they subscribe to relativism or something. I don't think that's it at all. You know, back to that Mertonian point, if you're grounded and rooted in your faith, you know, and you're, you're confident, but yet open to the truth that God communicates through others, even in places you don't expect, I think that's what the Pope is calling for here.
0: Well, and I love the fact that the Pope is is bringing this forward, and I'm sure that we'll have more opportunity to talk about this. I had no idea that the Vatican was promulgating a World Communication Day or supporting a World Communication Day, so I'm I'm looking forward to learning about more of it with with our listeners. But for now, let's take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm here with Dan Horan. We'll be back in a moment. <laughs> The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's P dot slash francisfxpod. Thank you.
1: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. And today, we're talking about a number of uh, pressing issues, some of great gravity, including our next topic. I grew up, David, in uh, the 90s. I was in high school in the mid-90s and and very much uh, a child of experientially, of the Columbine shootings in in Colorado. Um, I was in high school at the time, and I remember it was during our Easter break, hearing the reports and what was going on there is very disturbing, and then coming back to high school to a private Catholic school in upstate New York and having both a number of of copycat false alarms, people calling into school districts, into the Catholic uh, school system, and these sorts of things all over, not just in New York, but all over the place— and the new systems that were put in place for uh, evacuations and drills, some of which we did by way of almost like a fire drill, kind of a live shooting drill sort of thing. And some of them were actually not drills, but but false alarms, thanks be to God, false alarms. We have uh, still had and continue to have a number of uh, these tragedies where where violence is brought into the schools. And in the midst of the Tohu wabohu in Hebrew, the chaos and disorder of uh, our, our current political climate that gets so much media attention. There has not actually been a whole lot of discussion about the numerous school shootings that have unfolded. At least eight since the beginning of this calendar year, 2018.
0: Actually, I have a list of 11 here, and the the list is growing. So here's how I grew up. I grew up in the Cold War, and I grew up in a family that was paranoid and was aligned with some of the militia movements of the upper Midwest. And so I grew up with a cache of weapons in our house and with ammunition. And by the time that I was my children's age, they're currently eight and six, I knew how to use those weapons. I knew how to clean those weapons. I knew how to maintain those weapons. I was raised in a weapon-positive culture. Now, I will say that I no longer share that weapon-positive culture, but I understand in some ways the mindset of the NRA and the and the people who are like, we, we need these for defense. There's always a threat, and these guns should always be there. That being said, we are swimming in firearms. We are swimming in the ways both in small and high-caliber armaments to kill each other. And here in Chicago, especially, uh, we have an influx of guns coming from Gary, Indiana, and from other sources that just are awash, particularly here on the south side of the city. And so we have problems here in Chicago. We have problems across the nation. But one of the things that we, that we are seeing there's kind of a, a, a bipolar problem here. One is the problem that I just named. That is, we can go to areas here in the south side of Chicago and even now on the north side of Chicago where there's gun violence every day. And that gets talked about as a general problem. But we're also seeing in these suburban areas isolated incidents mostly in white communities of white disaffected youth or young adults picking up armaments and killing massive numbers of people. Both of these things are happening. What we're focusing on in, in this segment is this 11 and counting number of events that have happened in 2018 alone uh, where we have a student or a young adult – Taking up a weapon and using it to commit violence against a group of people or themselves we or should themselves yes. there's been uh, a couple uh, people taking their life on school property with with firearms as well. yeah and so this is certainly not uh, something that we're going to solve in a short segment here on the Francis effect and and it's just something that we need to kind of frame within the Catholic perspective now some pieces that we could bring into the conversation there are those who will say that armaments and military and those kinds of defenses are justifiable under a rubric called just war, the notion that somehow when the innocents are threatened, you can use a legitimate form of violence to protect the innocents. Now, there's a lot to be said about just war theory. And we've talked on this program about about that. But just war theory doesn't really apply to to these moments of just violence. So what we're seeing here is an outbreak of absolute sin, an outbreak of someone who, for reason of desperation or for reason of, of any any kind of extremity. And I almost said men- mental illness, but I don't really want to put this uh, necessarily on a, an escape hatch of mental illness because it's not just crazy people that do this. It's people who rationally plan, who come up with agendas and who come up with with tactics and who are using all the the tools of the rational mindset to create horrendous violence. And so this is an endemic problem to America. We don't see this in other in other civilized countries, we don't see this in other industrialized countries. We see this instead happening again and again in the United States. Yeah, certainly uh, disproportionate numbers. Um, you know, we, we, it, it is
1: an occurrence that takes place uh, in, in other Places for sure, but you know, I, I just want to pick up on a couple of things you raised from the theological tradition, from uh, from the Christian perspective. One is just war, which is a good point. People, you know, the NRA and others, NRA certainly being the most well-funded and resourced sort of advocate or lobbying group on behalf of gun ownership and sportsmanship and this sort of thing, as they would put it. You know, there there may be a hint of kind of just war justification that one has a right kind of in a religious sense beyond the, beyond the Second Amendment, at least the kind of standard interpretation of it, that there's private right to ownership of firearms. It's important to realize that in the Christian tradition, just war theory is not a principle of private force. This is for uh, governments and for institutions uh, to protect the common good. And as we discussed, as as you rightly noted um, in in a previous program of the Francis effect, the criteria are very, very rigorous. And there has not been, from the church's perspective, a just war probably since the World War II. And and even that becomes a, a source of debate uh, the other thing I want to say is that, you know, in in terms of the Christian right to personal defense, violent force and used uh, to protect oneself, uh, you know, you're being by an unjust aggressor being harmed or a loved one or an unknown bystander, this sort of thing. There, there are a variety of perspectives. For instance, St. Augustine, doctor of the church, great theologian, said that it is better for you to die a violent death than to create harm or to kill another person. That the sin of killing somebody else even to save your own life as an ostensible good was, was a problem that actually that would incur on you still the the ramifications of murder. It's better to be murdered than it is to murder somebody else is his point. And so he has a very, you know, Augustine It's curious is the kind of primary architect in the fourth century of what we would call today just war theory um, and engagement in reflection between church and state, to use an anachronism, when he talks about the city of God and the city of the, of, uh, the world, um, or the city of humanity, I guess is a better way to put it. The other thing is, but then we have somebody, you know, 800 years later in Thomas Aquinas, where Thomas says quite the opposite. He says there's this natural, and he's drawing here from Aristotelian observations, there's this natural inclination we have to perpetuate our life. And this is shared not only among rational creatures in his language, human beings, but also irrational creatures. You know, animals will try to defend themselves. And so he saw and understood life to be a good in and of itself in that one can justify the use or deployment of force, a violent force against another in order to protect one's
0: life if you are being treated by an unjust aggressor. And we can think about this, and we're going to talk a little bit in the third segment about the notion of the consistent ethic of life. But if we talk about the consistent eth- ethic of life, Cardinal Bernardin's notion of the seamless garment, when we look at the mindset, and I grew up in this mindset, so I can speak about it with some authority, the mindset of the hypothetical threat, the notion that somehow a gun is needed for personal protection against a hypothetical threat. As Catholics, one of the things that we have to look at that through is the notion that your perception of a hypothetical threat actually creates an an actual threat in the moment that having the gun there having a weapon there creates a greater possibility of violence. And I, again, I speak from experience because there was gun violence in my home. You know, the fact that there were guns all around us meant that when there was an altercation, someone could pick up a gun and use it. Yeah. And that, that becomes the thing is that as a, the argument that there's a hypothetical threat creates an actual threat in trying to counter the hypothetical. And that's what we as Catholics need to think about. We, what are our actions doing That actually create a greater threat for those around us in the hopes of staving off a hypothetical threat, which may never actualize.
1: Yeah. And and just to kind of bolster that point here in a report this week from the Huffington Post, an article about these school shootings. There's a statement here that says, In instances where minors shot a gun at school and authorities could determine where the child got the weapon, more than half obtained the gun at home. It is also fairly common for a school shooting to result from a confrontation or verbal argument that escalates, which goes back exactly to your point. And we see this in other advocacy groups, um, particularly against domestic violence, that will say the likelihood of uh, domestic murder between partners or uh, children and parents and so forth increases by the presence of firearms in the home. Because, you know, again, it's not this outside intruder. It's usually something that, that happens
0: from within. And let me speak to that. So there are people out there who are concealed carry advocates or advocates of the right to legally carry weapons. These are people who have given a lot of thought to this issue. They have gone through all of the legal hoops in order to have the right documentation so that they can do this. These are sober and and very careful-minded people, in my experience. Now, that being said, if you are an adult who has gone through all these hoops and who is a sober-minded person who's thought about this a lot, you probably are going to have a very defensible position when you sit down and rationally speak about it with, with a person who doesn't agree with you about the right to carry arms. The problem is, is that when we talk about minors or when we talk about people in an agitated state of mind, we're talking about people who have not given the access to weapons a sober and careful amount of thought. Let's say that we have a person in a household who is a concealed carry advocate who has thought about this. They may have people in their household who have not had the same sober-minded line of thought, including people who, when we're talking about young people, 15-year-olds is the most recent one on January 23rd when a 15-year-old opened fire inside a school and killed two people and injured 16, and that's just a couple days ago. This is a person who is instead driven by passions, who is, who is instead going to be making decisions. What you hear from the concealed carry advocates is that carrying a weapon makes them think differently about conflict situations. But this is an adult who has given it a lot of thought.
1: It, yeah. yeah, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back a yeah, little bit on do. that because I
0: think what you're saying is right in terms of an
1: anticipated defense on the part of uh, firearm advocates – What I'll say is you don't know until you're in the situation. That's well said. And and this is one of the tenets of nonviolent peacemaking – That I think is very useful and and to bring it into a Christian perspective now that we need to advocate and that that as Catholic Christians in particular need to embrace, which is whether you go to civil rights and civil disobedience, the work in the 1960s of uh, African-American racial justice in the United States, if you look at uh, other instances of the right uh, for uh, peaceful uh, to peaceful protest there is training, there is practice that's involved. You have to work to discipline yourself because when you're in that situation where you're under threat or you're being confronted, even in a peaceful demonstration, for instance, when sheriffs are spraying fire hoses at you or beating you with batons or tear gases out, or you're at the school and somebody is, is starting a fight or whatever it may be, whether it's an adult or whether it's a child, we revert to these primal kind of uh you know ways of being that are you know the so-called fight or flight mechanism and so i, I can think of an, a number of examples that i've heard from even generally peaceful nonviolent people including a scripture scholar that i served on the faculty with at another institution who was in paris once with his wife on vacation in a crowded subway in paris and felt all of a sudden a hand in his pocket a pickpocket and before he could think through something, he had already grabbed the hand and broken the finger of the person, the middle finger, just kind of, and he was horrified that he did this, but it was without thinking. And so, you know, I I recognize that the the distinction between kids, and and it's, it's only made worse, as you're rightly pointing out, because you know, we all know what it's like to be adolescents, what it's like to be teenagers, the hormones, the the, the plasticity of our brain, you know, the, the, the emotions and everything. Um, we're not in our right minds, but neither are we when we're in that dire situation. And it's true.
0: Maybe guns don't kill people, but people with guns kill people. What I love about what you're saying is that we can find a direct parallel with catechesis the whole notion of how we train people to enter the church and to live with one another in the church is to prepare themselves for situations where they will be tempted, to prepare themselves for situations where they will be brought into a situation where they may be in peril for their life or their soul, and to learn how to react and to, and to learn to have reflexes, habits that create the virtues that will lead to non-broken fingers and to the, the avoidance of the near occasion of sin. But what I love is, is that nonviolent protesters catechized themselves. That's right. What you, what yeah. you're saying. And the discipline that you're talking about, this repetition of, here's what the world will throw at you, and here's how you need to respond because of the values that you hold and that this is the thing is is I would love for our entire country to have a conversation about the values that we hold about how we want to be a society with one another how we wish to treat one another and we we wish for everyone to be aware of the fact that the world is the real world and there there will be threats but how we as christians respond to those threats is something that that we need to not be working out in the moment We need to be thinking about it in advance, and we need to be making preparations in our bodies so that our bodies react in the proper way. It's catechesis. It is catechesis, and I would say if we spent a tenth of the time and energy
1: that uh, religious educators do in talking about uh, sexual moral uh, concerns and and talk about – Uh, violence and uh, peacemaking concerns, which is actually something Jesus talked a whole lot about. He didn't talk a whole lot about sexual issues, but that's uh, maybe a topic for another day. Uh, At this point, I think we need to uh, wrap
0: up, although we could talk for a long time on uh, the the issue of of school shootings and gun violence. And what you just said tees us up perfectly for our next segment. So let's just go ahead and, and let's take a break and let's go into the next segment. So uh, you're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm here with Dan Haran, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hello, this is David uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. That's ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend, Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. So, a few days ago, I was flying up to Washington, D.C., and I didn't think about it at the time. It was a Thursday. And there, in the line at Southwest, were a bunch of people in clerical collars, and we came to realize that there were thirty three people in clerical collars on the plane priest flash mob priest flash mob and it was it, was, it was actually ended up being mundaline seminarians, so these were priests in preparation, and they were all flying up and in fact, most of the people on the flight to washington d c from Chicago were flying in for the march for life. And for those listeners that are unaware of this, this is a yearly event that happens in January where people from all over the nation descend upon Washington, D.C. with the intention of visibly making a presence in favor of the unborn and against Roe versus Wade and the regime of abortion that we have lived under for the last four decades. And so I had a chance to sit next to one of these seminarians and have a conversation about many topics. And in fact, the, the three of us on our row ended up having basically a, a Catholic nerd fest, and it was really a lot of fun. But uh, you know, I was aware that everyone around me was a certain type of Catholic, And let me speak about that in in another way, because then when I would the next day after the March for Life, I was riding the subway back to the airport and on the subway. There were youth groups and there were a bunch of mostly white kids who were visibly identified with the march because they had paraphernalia or they had lanyard tags. But I also saw that they were wrapped in flags and hats that all said make america great again. Oh god. And so there was there was a real visible presence for life but it was also a real visible presence for life that identified with a man who among other things has advocated violence against populations has advocated or has threatened nuclear war who has said that he could shoot someone in the middle of the street and get away with it. And That, so, that has called uh, nations like El Salvador, Haiti, and, and, and basically the entire continent of Africa shitholes. Yes. And so what, we, what we're what we looking at here is, it brings us back to a topic that we talk about a lot on this show, Dan, and that is Cardinal Bernadine's notion of the consistent ethic of life. The notion that if you simply talk about pro-life as an issue— and you just talk about the unborn as the key issue, and you don't talk about things like the notion of of a, of a livable wage for people, the notion of health care for people, the notion of good housing and access to water for people, if you don't talk about the, the other ways that we are violent against people, that you are myopically missing the notion and the opportunity to really robustly live a Catholic ethic. And one of the things that I'm aware of is that you have gotten into hot water around this topic On numerous occasions. And I just want to confront that head on and say, you know, if people Google you and Google you around the March for Life, they're going to find some stuff. What are they going to find?
1: They're going to find the haters, but the haters going to hate, hate, (laughs) hate, hate, hate. (laughs) Well, they're going to find people, frankly, who are deploying what we talked about in the first segment that Pope Francis has described as snake tactics. So, yeah, I'm aware of it. We've talked in the past about trolls, uh, social media people who deploy their social media platforms from an anonymous stance in order to Attack others or bring people down or to uh, confront people in in unhelpful, unconstructive ways. So yeah, I I have been the target of that. And and in some ways, this goes back to a blog post, an article I wrote six years ago called Why I Do Not Support the So-Called March for Life. And that's the, you know, every year around this time, January uh, on the anniversary or near the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade, and the in the march in Washington, people dig this up and, and I become the target of this kind of vitriol. So you're right, it is a real thing. And I can talk about what I wrote in the article, I, I stand by everything I said six years ago. And I think it's only your your observations, the anecdotal experience of who is identifying with this march, what kind of political aims are associated with it, further support some of the things that that I had written about in 2012.
0: Well, and in this article, one of the things that you say is that it becomes, and I'm going to paraphrase, but basically it becomes an opportunity to sort of see and be seen in a particular ideological lens and it doesn't actually become about witnessing to Catholic faith. It becomes to witnessing instead to a kind of political identity.
1: That's right. And I think my understanding is from the reporting that took place this year, that's beginning to change. And I think that's part of the Francis effect, you know, to use our own title here. And I think it's part of, uh, you know, the which pastoral leaders are wearing red hats these days. So you have Cardinal Wuerl, who's on the verge of retirement, who has been pretty moderate about some of the stuff. But you have people like Cardinal Supich, who's very much committed to his predecessor's legacy in the seamless garment. You know, Cardinal Bernadine made kind of popular, made made more generally available this uh, moral theological perspective called the consistent ethic of life, though he's not the originator. There are people like Brian Hare of Harvard University, a, a Boston priest and others, ethicists who've, who've worked on this. But in, in Cardinal Tobin in Newark, for instance, has, has long argued for immigration and racial justice and, and other issues as being constitutive of what it means to talk about being for life. Indeed, Catholics and all Christians, by virtue of our baptism, are called to be women and men for life. So one of the things that, you know, I, I basically in that article talk about three things that I that that lead me to not want to go and be a part of this particular demonstration. And quickly, what are those three? The first is that I think the title is incredibly misleading. They call it a march for life, but it really is an anti-abortion protest. And one of the things I concede in, in that article is that I, I think actually I'd be pretty supportive if they would just name it what it is, call it what it is. And I'm like, all right, well, as Catholics, we are not for the legalization of abortion. And and that's controversial on a number of fronts. But, you know, if this is what you're going to do and you're there on the date of the anniversary of this Supreme Court decision about abortion rights, uh, well, then call it what it is. Uh, you know, another thing is that it's it's if that's actually what you want is to decrease abortions, let alone affect legislation. I mean, I think the Republican Party in particular, because the Democratic Party at the national level has in its platform uh, right to choice. And so the Republicans have have taken advantage of a certain opportunity to convince evangelical Christians and Catholic Christians in particular, although others, that they are the party of life because they are anti-abortion rights. It's interesting that in the last 40 years, we've had a number of Republican presidents, Republican congresses and senates, Republican leaning Supreme Court benches, and nothing has changed. So I'm not convinced, and this is one of the things I point out, that gathering for this march is going to make any difference. And I actually think there's a specious, you know, kind of political aim here, which leads to the third point, which is, you know, that it is, as you rightly said a moment ago, uh, paraphrasing, that it's it's kind of a who's who of a certain Catholic political ideology. And back in 2012, and I cite in that that article, that there was a lot of reporting, even from supporters of the march and people who are present for the liturgy at the National Shrine and and so on, and all the different speeches, that say the hour-long roll call of the thanks to this bishop, the thanks to that politician, and the thanks to this person, and that kind of celebrity and so forth, becomes kind of a self-congratulatory thing, and you lose sight of why it is that we're there. It's like... Coachella, you know, the music festival out in California or something like this, where you go to be seen and to be part of it, to say, I was there. And I think that has done damage to the intention. But my primary focus is the need to say, my concern is really this, and I'm not alone. Pope Francis himself has talked about this. And so if it's good enough for the Holy Father, it's good enough for me. And he's not alone. John Paul II and others have talked about this too, that we are not a one-issue community as Catholic Christians. We are for all life. And so if you are for capital punishment for the death penalty, but are against abortion, you are not pro-life. If you are for immigration bans or you are for the retraction of the Children's Health Insurance Program or the DACA program, and these sorts of things that dramatically affect the life and the well-being and the safety and the future of people, you are
0: not pro-life. You are simply anti-abortion. So let me put my cards on the table as well. So I identify in many ways with the political left. Sometimes that means that I've caucused with the Democratic Party and I have lots of friends in the Democratic Party. It also means that at times I've caucused with the Democratic Socialists or with other socialist organizations. This is the one place where I consistently have real friction. And as a Catholic politically, it is very difficult for me to identify with the left right now because of the strong push on the part of the left for An absolute carte blanche sort of abortion right. And so we can get into another discussion at some point about the breaks that I've had with the Democratic Socialists, the breaks that I've had with Democrats generally about that. That being said, to get back to what we said earlier about tempering the rhetorical position against actual facts – one of the things that I say to my friends on the right is that simply legislating against abortion, we have a great deal of evidence to show that it doesn't actually reduce the number of abortions.
1: Actually, it increases the number it of deaths, deaths number, because, of, yeah,
0: yeah you know, again, I'm
1: not for, yeah. I, I think this is this is where nuance, as you're ex- describing here, is so important,
0: but yeah. gets lost in the conversation because it's easy to say, I'm against killing babies. But what, what increases the life, what increases the possibility of birth is creating viable economic models where women right. have agency creating a culture where out of wedlock pregnancy is not stigmatized the way that it currently has been in our culture all of those things actually contribute to more babies being born and less babies being terminated and as you rightly said when you legislate against abortion that means that not just not just unborn children are being killed but mothers are dying as well from back alley things. This is the piece that, that I, I want to see is a real robust conversation, and this is why the, the consistent ethic of life is so important to me. It's because the consistent ethic of life is not simply passing a law. It's looking at the entire way that we shape our community And to make our community a place where human beings in all of their variety can live and flourish, which is what Jesus did. Jesus looked at the human community and its variety. He didn't say this is gym class, all look the same way, all jump the same way. He said, you are a tax collector. You are a a Pharisee. You're a prostitute. You're a leper. You're all welcome because you're all children of God. Let's find a way that we can all be living together and to be living without sin and the occasions of violence. I think there's another thing, too, when it comes to
1: political activism and, and political uh, support for different candidates. And, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that at the national level, there is a party platform in which women's choices is, is kind of highlighted uh, and, and as you put it. You know, there is a kind of widespread or broad understanding of access to a variety of services, most of which have to do with health care that is, as we know, a contentious issue in the United States because it's very expensive and not all women have access to it. But also that includes uh, abortion. Um, We also need to distinguish between is your aim a purely political legislative aim or is your aim less abortions, more life? And I think that's where the, the whole picture becomes really important. Yes, you might have on one side a, a candidate who is, identifies as pro-choice, but however, also supports a whole infrastructure and a whole network and legislation and systems and institutions to support life, uh, to care for the poor, to care for those born, not just the unborn children, to care for the families and so forth. And then you look at the on, – on the other side, you have a candidate who might claim to be pro-life and yet want to strike down all these social safety nets, want to uh, take health care away from those who are most positions of precarity, and so on and so forth. And so you have to ask yourself, even on the issue of life from womb to tomb, as it were, who in the whole picture is actually supportive of this? I'm reminded, for instance, of uh, Matthew's account of the father who had two sons, not the prodigal son, but the two sons who go out into the field. And the story goes... You know, there was a father who had a farm, and he says to his first son, go out into the field, and the f- and the son says, yes, I will, Father. I'll go do my chores, and he doesn't. He goes off and does something else. He has the right words, but he doesn't follow through. And you have the second son who says, screw you, Dad. I'm going to the mall, And but instead changes his mind and goes into the field and does the work. So he says ostensibly the wrong thing, but actually provides for what God is calling, you know, following through with the bigger picture, with fulfilling his highest responsibilities, his duty to the family. So, you know, I, I don't mean to sim- simplify this. And I know there will be listeners who will take my words out of context and, and will be upset because we've resorted to black and white thinking, absolutism, you know, all or nothing sort of attitudes when it comes to abortion. It's so complicated. And, or what is so complicated has been reduced so much. But I think that is a parable that needs to be thought about a lot in when it comes to political decisions. And, and case in point is what we have before us right now. There are a lot of evangelical Christian voters and, and, and certainly a lot of Catholic voters who heard things like Supreme Court appointments and heard things that, that are viewed only through the lens of abortion. And the devastation, the effects that it's going to have on society, on the family, on all other, you know, on the lives of immigrants, on the lives of
0: those who are working class and poor— is absolutely devastating. So what would you say to the haters? And I've read some of the the trolls who attack you on this, (laughs) but they would basically accuse you right now of casuistry. And one of the things that they would say is at the time of slavery, the one issue that you should have been talking about as a Christian would have been the abolition of slavery, and you should have been working against it. Now, if we actually go back and look at the history of slavery, we see that Christians were on all the different ends of the spectrum of that and that what actually ended up helping to end slavery and in some ways we still haven't ended it is it's a complex political problem that you can't just pass a law and get rid of it because those that wish to do it will find a way around the law right
1: and that's that's where we get into the era of Jim Crow and we have redlining and all the stuff that goes on now I have a simple answer to that and that's you, you've basically named it which is it's it's never been that you know there, there's this uh, first of all there's a claim that there's at any given moment in history one supreme moral issue and that's the thing you should put all your focus behind and then effectively what you're arguing for anonymous trolls or david as devil's advocate here is you're you're arguing for the lax engagement with all these other things so i guess as long as you're against abortion you could be for sexually assaulting women which is what the president of the united states on record has said or you could call you know uh, nations poor nations of people predominantly of color you know expletives and so forth
0: or even if you are vocally against abortion as a a legislator, you can still go out and procure abortions for your mistress, which we've seen several examples of. Yeah, I
1: mean, the hypocrisy is really striking. So what I would say is, I I look back to the figures that Pope Francis mentioned to, to American Catholics as models of how we should engage in this American context as Christians. And one of them was Martin Luther King Jr. Despite the kind of pun intended, whitewashing of Martin Luther King Jr. that's happened over the the decades. One of the things King was very, very committed to was a, a version of a seamless garment approach. Everyone associates him with racial justice and for good reason and absolutely. But what they forget about is that he was also talking about workers' rights and fighting against poverty and talking about nonviolence. You know, the reason he was so threatening and the occasion on which he was assassinated was his going to support garbage workers and and support unionization and the rights of poor working class people, particularly working class people of color in the South. And so he also was very vocal on the war in Vietnam and the injustices of that military action. So he himself was engaged Though he's held up as an icon of racial justice and and nonviolent peacemaking and protest, that's all true. But he wasn't neglecting all these other things. So, you know, my response is you're neglecting your Christian obligation to follow in the footprints of Christ who was not a one-issue person. He didn't go around talking about one thing. He engaged with all of the injustices of his time like the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. And I think you're called to do the same. If you're
0: just anti-abortion, you're not pro-life. Well, and there's a lot more to say about this topic as there is about all the topics that we've covered today. Just one last word about the March for Life. I met a lot of people on that plane, and I want to give shout-outs to Michael and Colin and Rob and the people who engaged me in conversation. I love the fact that you're politically active, and I I share your desire to see less abortions. And so I just want to say for all those that went to the March for Life, I'm so happy to see Catholics being visibly part of the political sphere, and I hope that there's a lot more of that, but along a spectrum of issues in which we can look at ways that we can apply our Catholic. Like beliefs and principles to the legislative and the executive branches of government so that we make this a better society for everyone, even the least of these, to live in. And Dan, thank you for engaging me in all these conversations today. As always, it's great to talk to you. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studio here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks and you should check them out at zygoncenter.org. That's Z Y G O N center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our first season. Please go back and listen to those. Thanks for listening.